Welcome to Careers in Discovery, your window into the world of leaders in pharma and biotech. Brought to you by Singular Talent, making hiring better for organizations involved in drug discovery and R&D. Simon Saxby is the CEO of Leaf Expression Systems, a company harnessing the power of plants as single-use bioreactors. Simon's international career has seen him cover a huge amount of ground, from antibody research to biologics manufacturing, and he joined us on Careers in Discovery to discuss his journey so far. Today I'm with Simon Saxby of Leaf Expression Systems. Simon, welcome to Careers in Discovery. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, nice to be here. Good to see you. Um, we always start, Simon, by talking a bit about your current work and the things you're doing, the things you're most involved in. So as, as Chief Exec of, of Leaf Expression Systems, can you tell us a bit about the company, the work you do, um, and, and how you spend your time? Sure. Um, Leaf Expression Systems is a spin-out from the John Ennis Centre based mm-hmm. in Norwich. John Innes Centre um, is one of the world's foremost plant biology facilities around the world. I mean, if they gave Nobel Prizes for plant biology, then, then John Innes Centre would have as many as LMB in Cambridge and other mm-hmm. places. So, so to spin out from there with a technology that enables us to express proteins, including, including monoclonal antibodies and cytokines and growth factors and vaccines um, in the leaves of plants. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, and it's a very it's a very quick process. The what we call the upstream bit of it, which is the bit in the plants, um, has the potential to be about twenty five or thirty percent less expensive than than typical bioreactor processes for okay. the same kinds of products, as long as we get the expression levels, etc. So, so it's a quite a disruptive technology to the industry. It's it's although it's been around for a long time, people have been making things in plants for thirty or forty years. Yes. Most of the investment and everything else has gone into improving yields and processes in mammalian cells and bacterial cells and basically bioreactor processes. Mm-hmm. So, so plant-based expression is just beginning to come of age. And, and there are, as I say, a number of advantages, including the fact that sometimes we can make products that, that don't express any other systems as well as the cost advantages and the speed. So, so LEAF was established um, as a CDMO, as a contract development and manufacturing organization, to commercialize this technology that was developed by, by two people, George Lomonosov, who is still at the, um, at the John Innes Center in, in Norwich, and a guy mm-hmm. called Frank Sainsbury, who's now in, now in Australia. So we also got some funding from BBSRC, and essentially what BBSR did was put up a building, a bespoke building for us, because it's what we need is slightly different from a bioreactor facility. Right. Um, and, and the facility became operational in the beginning of 2018. I joined midway through the year, really to help to start commercialize the business and go out and offer the services to the global life science industry, as well as agri-biotech and animal health companies and everything else, because mm-hmm. what we do is applicable to all of those people. Yes. So, so over the past two and a half years, coming up to three years now, that's what we've been doing. We're gradually building the business, I should say gradually. It's been growing quite rapidly, actually, mm-hmm. 40% year on year in terms, of, in terms of revenues. And clearly the point we, you know, we want to reach is where we, where we become a profitable organization and we've got plans for growth, which I think we'll talk about yes. um, a, a bit later on um, yes. in terms of what we're doing. And, and from my point of view, I think what we're doing also has significant potential for what we're trying to do in, in UK PLC, 
in okay. terms of, you know, the government is now really focused on self-reliance within the UK for, for future preparedness, I think is how they describe it, for, for future pandemics and outbreaks of diseases, but also the ability to manufacture a lot of the biologic drugs, including their monoclonal antibodies, mm-hmm. that, that we use here in the National Health Service, you know, which right now we import from everywhere else because we outsourced all that manufacturing. So I think the government's focused on bringing some of that back on shore, which I think is great news. Yes. And I think our technology can play a real part in that, particularly from a vaccine vaccine manufacturing point of view. So, um, so we'll see whether that goes, but um, mm. I'm pushing quite hard at that door. Interesting. So if I've understood conceptually, and please correct me if I'm wrong, then essentially what you're saying is the plant acts as the bioreactor and you use that to, to grow the proteins. Yeah, yeah. So so we describe them, I describe them as, as nature's single-use bioreactors, actually. Right, yes. So so what we do, and it's I, I guess that's an important point. It's it's important to stress that what we're doing is, is we use a transient expression system. So these are not GMO plants. Mm-hmm. So so when we when we sow the seeds. The plants grow up and then we have to infiltrate them is the expression we use to get the gene sequence of interest into the plant and we do that via a bacterium called agrobacterium which naturally infects the plants anyway right. so so we put the gene sequence into into agrobacterium or plasmid um, and the process is actually very simple we grow up a culture of, of agrobacterium that's got that gene sequence of interest in it and we then immerse the plants upside down mm-hmm. in a solution of the agrobacterium in a vacuum chamber. We pull a vacuum for about 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that pulls air, all the air and out of the interstitial spaces and the leaves of the plants. And when we release the vacuum, it sucks everything back in, including the agrobacterium. And then we get natural transfection from the agrobacterium into the cells of the, um, of the plants and at a very, very high rate, it's about 90% efficient. Yeah. And then um, the plants start start to express the protein and within typically five to seven days we uh, we harvest the leaves wow. of the plant or the whole plant um and then started start the purification process so actually from the infiltration stage it's a very very quick process yeah no absolutely um and, and as you said there's there's broad implications of that right there's a lot it sounds like there's lots of different types of proteins you can express you mentioned monoclonal antibodies there so that's clearly got some therapeutic uses there and then mm-hmm. agritech livestock uh, those areas as well so yeah and and also some quite complex biomolecules as well mm. um because the plants they're eukaryotic and so we get full post-translation modifications that that you know you need for some of these larger molecules and functionality um and we've made a number of products a range of different types of products as well to is to essentially exemplify the technology for people right. because it's because it's believe it or not even now there are still people who don't realize that you can you can make these kinds of things in plants mm-hmm. so um so that's what we've done and a couple of them including one of the you know best known monoclonals avastin you know we've produced avastin and, okay. and outsourced all of the in vitro assays and and it performs exactly the same as the as the original antibody does wow um, just to exemplify that, that we can do. And we've done that with a diagnostic antibody for a company and they ran against their um, their gold standard actually mm. and said, we can't tell the difference between the two. So, um, so it works extremely well. Very interesting. And you mentioned that the sort of the concept has been around for quite some time, but it's only recently started to gain traction. Is, is that just because it's been difficult to perfect or what's been the situation there? I think it's, um, it's been a combination of a couple of things. Firstly, people deciding what plants to use. Actually, you can express right. proteins in any plant. 
and, okay. and people have been using duckweed and all sorts of things for different kinds of different kinds of expression. Mm. Um, but a, lo a lot of it is, has been down to the fact that because what we do is so highly regulated for all the right reasons, um, most of the money and investment has gone into both the infrastructure, the processes, um, and improving yields in mammalian cells or bacteria. Mm -hmm those kinds of things as opposed to the money going into plants because because all those processes are processes that the regulators were familiar with and of course the scientists were because it all comes from biorexes and brewing basically right yes so so all while all that investment has gone in that direction few companies picked this up and have started in and have invested quite a lot of money in, in improving expression levels and that's really been where we've we've been trying to go to and and when George and Frank developed this technology that's called hypertrans it's it's an, a, an expression technology that enables us to get high yields in mm -hmm. plants, and that's the key to it so so one of the things we're doing aside from all the service stuff that we're doing we have ongoing R&D where we are generating new vectors that we're about to patent actually that give high expression as well and perhaps okay. higher expression so so improving expression levels is key to this going forward we know what we need to achieve in terms of the way we measure it is milligrams per kilogram of plant material as opposed mm -hmm. as opposed to milligrams per liter if you like in a biomedical yes. process and so so once we you know we get to 400 500 milligrams per kilogram or above we're we're in the game from a commercial long-term commercial viability point of view mm -hmm. um some of the other things are it's very because it's you know it's very scalable. So we know once we've got a process that's reasonably optimized, we know that the yields we get out of 10 plants will be the yields typically that we'll get out of a million plants. I see, yeah. So it's very, very predictable from that point of view. So quite early on, we can start working out what, what cost of goods are likely to be. And yeah. And then, and then the downstream side of the purification processes, once we've got rid of the chlorophyll and endotoxin, which you have to do sometimes in other processes anyway, the purification process is exactly the same as it would be out of a bioreactor system. And okay. of course, the regulators are very familiar with that. So, so we're now in a situation actually where the technology has come on quite a lot. And, and actually there's a company in, in Canada and the US called Medicargo who are using essentially the same expression technology. Mm -hmm. and and they now have a seasonal flu vaccine that's sitting on health canada's desk waiting for approval i see um, and they've also collaborated with gsk and they have that file on health canada's desk waiting for rolling approval for for their covid vaccine mm -hmm. um, which is now in phase two phase three clinical study and actually they put some information out about it uh, yesterday or the day before actually okay. so that's progressing really well in terms of in terms of the, the responses they're getting and, and its um, efficacy. So, so yeah, so the technology is moving on. Mm. And, um, and it's, you know, it's, from our point of view, it's, it's, another, it's another string to the bow in all the things that we need in, you know, and are going to need to tackle diseases and future pandemics and everything else, because I think we're all fairly certain we're not going to be waiting another 100 years for another pandemic. Yes. Fortunately. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that scalability you mentioned seems like a pretty big advantage over what's out there now. In terms of the predictability yeah. and, and consistency, yes. Because even, even you know, in a bioreactor process, one of the things that, that clearly matters is, is glycosylation when you're making, when you're producing proteins. And, mm -hmm. and you get various variations in glycosylation in bioreactor processes at different stages of the process. Whereas with the plant system, it's very, very consistent. 
Right. So, so that certain advantages to it there. And of course, there's no the other aspect of it. There's no animal derived proteins involved in the process. Mm -hmm. So we don't we don't have the risks of adventitious infections that might come from animal derived products that are used in the process too. So. Yeah, I see, because it's all plant-based protein. It's all plant-based. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah vegan um, antibodies. Yes. Have <laughs> <laughs> to get that to the marketing team immediately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and every CEO that we speak to answers this question slightly differently. And I guess it sometimes depends which phase your business is in. But in your role, Simon, where do you spend most of your time? Where does most of your attention go these days? Um, well, luckily, I have a really good team. Who, who really don't need my input on a day-to-day -day basis, mm -hmm. other than other than a bit of a bit of you know contract work and BD and what have you. And and you know my view is the CEO reports to sales and marketing anyway. So mm -hmm. um, so most of what I'm doing and most of what I'm focusing on is is trying to build a business, working with the board, and we have a really really good board actually, um, and and the shareholders to where we want to go to next and how we can build the next space for the company. I mean. Um, we don't want to be, you know, remain as a small R&D company. That's not the goal for, all, mm -hmm. for any of us. Um, and so we've got some challenges for that. And that's, that's tending to be what, what focuses my mind and most of my attention um, is, is how do we get to the next stage of growth for the business? And, and it's important for us, but it's also important for our customers. Yes. Because, because, you know, we are, because the, the technology is slightly different for customers to come to us and say, actually, you know, we'll, we'll try this and see if it works in your plant-based system. If it does work, then clearly what they want to know is how are you going to get me to into the clinic and, and mm -hmm. commercial manufacturing, assuming my product is, is successful. So um, otherwise, we've got to go back and restart the process and right. prove equivalence and all that kind of stuff in a bioreactor process, which adds risk and time and money. So we don't need to do that. Um, mm -hmm. So so that's that's what focuses my attention takes up most of my time at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So looking at that, those future challenges and mm. Mm. where the, where the, where the opportunities might be as well, I suppose. Yes, um, correct. So I'm very interested to understand the journey to here, Simon. Um, and, um, I, I'd really like to, to talk through it with you. It'd be great if, um, we could take it back to the beginning at first. So if I, if I've got the right information, you actually started out studying zoology. Um, I did in Swansea. Uh, yes, yes. So, <laughs> why zoology? First of all, why why science in general? How did that lead to this career that you've had? T talk us through it from the from okay. back then. Um, biology is always interesting. So I've always been mm -hmm. interested in, in biological sciences. Um, my my goal when I was young, the job I was after was to be a game ranger. Um, okay. That's that's what I wanted to be, um, and I grew up in in I'm from South Africa, so mm -hmm. um, so I ended up in England um, and got an opportunity to study zoology at Swansea, and and having I did A level zoology as well actually at school in London. So and and I got very interested in cell biology and immunology and endocrine physiology essentially, yeah, human human physiology. So when I was at Swansea, the beauty of the course at Swansea enabled me to pick the courses that I was most interested in, as opposed to having a prescribed, very prescribed course. I see. And so I was able to focus on, on all those sorts of courses, immunology and cell biology and all those sorts of things. And cellular immunology is really what floated my boat. So, mm. so when I graduated, um, I had an opportunity to work 
to go into academia at the laboratory of molecular biology in Cambridge, mm -hmm. um, working in the clinical oncology unit there. And so a lot of that was focused around antibodies and all the rest of it. Um, so that's how it started. And yes. that's what sparked my interest in, in biotech as well, actually. So, um, but, in, but in science and R&D and what have you. And, and I decided I'd quite like to stay in that. So after two years in academia, I moved into industry, basically into biotech. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think academia suited me particularly, and, and okay. I was probably not right for it either. So, um, so I moved into biotech actually with a, with an American company, and and really liked the buzz of being in biotech. And, mm. and I had very very good managers in my time, including two managers who who. Um, looked after me when I was in at LMB actually, so the start of my career. And I think that's important. It, it sort of frames how you manage people as well going forward. So I was very lucky from that point of view. Um, so, and then when I got into ending the biotech, I was, I was given the opportunity at a very early stage of taking on responsibility for managing people and managing facilities right. and, and meeting investors as well, actually, at the way okay. the company was formed. So I was starting to meet investors, individual investors and what have you um, at, a, at a very early stage in my career and really, really enjoyed those interactions in developing those relationships with all those people, both internal customers as well as the external customers. Yes. Right? So that's how it started. Yeah, interesting. And uh, not that it's ever easy even today, but um, I guess the, the sort of biotech model is fairly well established now, right? You know, people, the particularly investors who are invested in the sector, they know what it is, they understand that the, it's it's a viable option for someone from academia to go and start a biotech company if they've got an interesting idea. Um, I imagine it was a slightly different venture then, and I imagine it was a slightly different landscape. It, it was actually, yeah, because biotech was was very young. So yeah. this is now going back into the, the, the 80s, the early 80s and mid 80s. Mm. Um, and it was just beginning to flourish and monoclonals were just beginning to, you know, make an impression and everything else. So, so yeah, it was quite difficult. Um, but a group of us decided um, that we wanted to see if we could become our own bosses. Rather than okay. so, so we decided to try and raise some money to start our own R service R&D company and develop mm -hmm. some products of our own and things like that as well. And, and unfortunately, we chose... Um, 90, the end of 1987, just when you know we had there was a major stock market crash, right. um, which you may you may not remember, but but it, it wasn't a great time to raise money. Right. And, um, and there were a number of th other things that are happening. And so so the company in the UK was being closed down because it's all being moved to the US. And so so there was a lot of stuff going on, and mm. we all had our job offers to go and do other things and work for other people. And we had a deal on the table to start our own company, which mm. was not a particularly good deal. And we knew that, actually. <laughs> but we all decided we were going to stick with it and go with it just to see what we could do and, and have a chance to be out, you know, masters of our own destiny. Yes. And, um, and actually, that was the formative start of it. So, so from that point on, um, we learned how to run a company. We made lots of, lots of mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, we, had to live, we had to live on what we earned, basically, for this, for this business, which was, a, you know, startup disruptive, all the you know, usual things. Yeah. Um, but then a few things happened along the way. Um, for, for me, from a career point of view, um, I, again, I took on a dealership for a, quite a disruptive technology. It was hollow fiber technology for producing antibodies and things yeah. from a US company. Um, and that gave us as a business some advantages in terms of costs and also technology and that we could, we could provide to our customers. Um, and that led me to 
for them managing all of the European dealers. So I was yeah. now training everybody around Europe. I then started training all the folks in the US because I, you know, we were using the technology more than anybody else and knew right. more about it. And that ultimately led me being going to the United States mm-hmm. um, to lead the design and build of a GMP facility for contract manufacturing in, in Massachusetts just around the time when the FDA had changed the rules around contract manufacturing, make it easier for contract manufacturers to, to set up basically and get licenses to manufacture. Yeah, I see. Um, and so that exposed me to a completely different environment. And, um, you know, the US environment is is very, very dynamic and was far more dynamic than than than, than the UK environment right. was. So, um, so yeah, so that was, that was, you know, I don't think if I, if I hadn't gone to the United States, I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing now in terms of mm. being the CEO and various other things. So it was a real learning curve, getting into GMP manufacturing, starting to work with the FDA and all those kinds of things um, was really, really interesting. It was a, it was a lot of fun. real pressure, you know, yes. um, because we had to get this thing built. And again, you know, what I was doing is I was leading the contract services side of that business, which was a new business for the company. So in the process of designing, helping design and lead this project to get this facility up and running, which was relatively small, mm-hmm. um, we were also generating business and um, and trying to bring in new customers to a brand new facility, all that kind of thing. So yeah. so a real learning experience, you know, from all aspects of the business, of growing the business, quality, regulatory, you, you name it, you know, it was, it was a, a massive learning experience. and and very, very stressful, but very enjoyable at the same time. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I, I'm sure it's the same for any regulatory authority, but the FDA aren't necessarily known for being particularly uh, <laughs> lenient or, or flexible. No, they're not. They're not lenient. But Which I have to say, been, right? I have, yeah, they have to be tough. Yeah. I have to say, though, that all my interactions with the FDA and the MHRA here mm. have always been very, very positive. Mm. They've always been extremely helpful. Um, and a bit further down the line, you know, the US thing led when I came back from the US that led me to going to Malaysia, actually. So I went to Malaysia okay. to again as a CEO, that was my first CEO role. Yeah. To to lead the design and build of a, of a much bigger GMP facility in Malaysia. And and in fact, we were the first, I believe we were the first non-Malaysian biotech company to get funding in Malaysia to do GMP manufacturing in Malaysia. Interesting. We were granted pioneer status in Malaysia and everything else. Um and, and you know, we had the design for this facility up and running. And clearly the market we were after was, was the first world market as well as everywhere else. Mm-hmm. So, so we requested a meeting with the FDA to just talk through the design with them. And everybody said they won't give you a meeting. You know, they don't, they're not really interested in talking to people who've got clinical trials facilities because they don't generally inspect up to phase two clinical, clinical right. trials facilities. It's usually higher than that. But the FDA granted us a meeting. And, um, and they gave us fantastic feedback on the design of the facility and the mm. changes that we had to make. And, 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 they, and they were brilliant. Um, so, yeah, so I, I don't have a bad word to say about them. I mean, they've, they've got regulations and clearly safety is of course, the primary yeah. issue. You yeah. know, we want to make people better as opposed to making people worse in terms of sickness. So, yes. Um, but, it's, but my interactions with them and the MHR have always been very positive. And, and so one of the things I've learned and, you know, advice to people who are thinking about starting a company and or producing something that's going to be a drug, engage with the regulators as early as you possibly can, because they will be nothing but helpful. And mm. the earlier they know about what you're trying to do, the more helpful they'll be. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And you mentioned that was the first uh, sort of full CEO role that you took on, but you've done a few of them since then. I have. Um, <laughs> talk, talk us through, talk us through the, the next bit, I guess. So I, we did Malaysia um, and that facility was, was up and running. And then I was offered the chance to come and um, join Cobra, which was a publicly listed company mm-hmm. in the UK. Um, and Cobra was struggling a little, I think it's fair to say at the time, time that I joined. So, so the challenges there were a little bit different. Firstly, it was a public company, a publicly yeah. listed company, so on, on AIM. So, so that was a learning curve for me. But, but you know, again, with the team there, we had to work and, and basically get the company to the point where it was stable. Um, you know, I recognized fairly on, fairly on, as did the board, that we needed to find a bigger partner for the business. And so, yes. you know, for almost from day one, our focus was on raising some money to keep, keep the company going and then finding a bigger partner, which is what we did, actually. So, mm-hmm. so a couple of years later, we sold it to Rest Farm in, in Sweden and have this contract manufacturing business model. Yeah. And um, and the rest is history. Basically, COVID has gone on gangbusters since then. Mm, you know, mm. I spent a year on um, once it, once the acquisition went through, um, we sold the an Oxford facility to Oxford Biomedica actually, where they are using manufacturing products today. Yes. Um, and and after we'd done the integration, I left, and um, Peter Coleman took over, who's now the CEO, and he's done a brilliant job with it. So, mm. um, so and it's great to see that Cobra are playing a major part today in in the vaccine program yes know? so and that's not nothing to do with me that's all down to peter and, and his team but but joining cobra was really another great learning curve for me real challenges really stressful um i had you know, i had an emergency appendectomy in the middle of doing a deal as well wow okay <laughs> added, added to the fun and games but, but actually you know being ceo of a public company was, um, was yeah a very very good experience very interesting experience as well yeah so yeah, so that was the next the next phase of it, really. Yeah, and interesting, I suppose, to to look back on, and and I guess if you look at what's happened over the last year or so, um, perhaps I mean I'm sure this wasn't the sort of plan at the time, but it's that it, there's a few companies, Cobra being one of them, that have really enabled the vaccine response that that we've had, and and I guess there aren't a lot of places in the world that have that infrastructure that that's been put in place over many years right no and i think as much as that's you know the government's had an impact on that and as much as you know Mm. the government like all the other governments have made mistakes in this one of the things they did do was enable the industry to get together and do something right Um, and actually a lot of that success has come about because the industry in the uk all these different companies very quickly agreed that they were going to work together and how they were going to work together to enable all of this stuff to happen. So, so while it would have been fantastic for UK PLC to have had a huge vaccine manufacturing facility that could st- start churning out vaccines, that's not the case and wasn't right. the case. It may be in the future, but yes. it wasn't the case then. And, and all these people in the industry got together and said, how, how can we make this happen? And, um, and so it's testament to the UK PLC's life science industry, I think, that we've been as successful as we have been, as you say, mm-hmm. with all those companies like Cobra and Fuji and all the other guys that have that have got involved, and Oxford Biomedica obviously playing a leading role as well. Mm-hmm. So, so a really really interesting situation um, and and a fantastic response from from UK life science industry. I think. Yeah, it's it's been very interesting to see the collaboration over the last the last period because you know it's an intensely competitive industry most of the time, isn't it? And uh, yeah. 
you know, yeah. I, I guess all that has been thankfully put aside for for the greater good. Mm, uh, indeed, in circumstance, and hopefully people yeah. remember that. <laughs> I hope so, and you know, I think they will. And because you know, one of the questions people ask, well, normally it takes many years to develop a vaccine. So how has it happened so quickly this time? Mm. You know, is it safe? Well, clearly it is safe. But it's happened because, as you were saying, normally when a company is developing a vaccine, they're keeping it secret. Yeah. You know, they want to, they want to protect that IP. And when they launch it, they want it to be theirs and they want to generate revenues and make a profit from it mm. um, and pay back all that R&D expense. Well, this time around, everybody collaborated in terms of data, capabilities, platform technologies, you know, there were no secrets. People just threw it all into the hat and said, right, you know, let's make this work. Yes. And so that what we end up with, with is, you know, the, the sum of all those collective parts is, is far greater than any of them on an individual basis. And, and that's what's happened. That's why we work so quickly. Mm. No, absolutely. There was a few points in um, your journey that I wanted to unpack a little bit, Simon, if that's all right. Um, mm -hmm. The first one being that... Um, one of the things I hear regularly from people who have held a, a CEO position is that it's very different to any other job. You know, when you when you first step into it, there's a big learning curve, and and obviously you're responsible for everything all of a sudden, and it's a, it's it's quite a change. Um, I suppose having been through a few of them, I was interested in your views on the key lessons you've learned as a CEO, and 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 I guess what you think makes a good CEO, and and what that role is really about. You're right. It is very different, um, and and actually, and and somebody else I won't I won't name him. Um, somebody else told me once. When the tone, when the going gets tough, you then find out how lonely being a CEO is. Mm. So when everything's going really well, it's great. Everybody's very happy to be involved and in, you know take the acclamation and all the rest of it. And when the going going gets tough, then you know <laughs> there's nobody around to help you <laughs> other than. A good board if you've got a good board. Right. So, um, in terms of in terms of the the, the the things I've learned as a CEO, one one I think you have to trust the people around you. So, mm -hmm. so having a good team around you is really key, because as a CEO, certainly from my own experience anyway, you know, I don't know everything about what we do at a very technical level. You right. know, I'm not a molecular biologist. You know, I'm not many things in the business. I have a broad enough knowledge about generally to know what's going on, but you have to rely on the people around you. And, and so having a team of people, a good team of people around you is really, really key if you're going to be successful, if everybody's going to be successful. So, and that team needs to be, needs to be comprised of people who have different skills and talents and outlooks and perceptions and all those sorts of things. And, mm -hmm. and, they have to be able to sit down and have robust conversations with each other and challenge and all the rest of it and then and then continue as friends. So yes. so I think building a really good team and encouraging a really good team to 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 trust themselves, yeah, I think is important. So I think if you have that, then as a CEO, you know, your your job is a bit easier. So so again, at at Lee, for example, we have a really, really good team of people. We're small, but they are really good. They all know what they're doing. And and you know, most of them know what they're doing far better than I do. So <laughs> So, you know, my input is as and when it's needed, mm -hmm. really. The other, the other key aspect of the, of the job as a, as a CEO is like anything in business and, and whatever stage you are or whatever, whatever position you occupy in a company, it's all about relationships. You know, it's relationships with people that you work with. So your internal 
relationships, if you like, your internal customers as well as the external relationships. And, and a CEO's role is no different from that. So relationships with all of those people in the company, yes, as well as relationship with your investors and the board. And and clearly, you know, having a great having a good board with people that you can work with and people who will who will challenge you, but challenge you in a in a constructive way, I think is important. Mm-hmm. And people that you can go to and and that you feel you can go to and say, I'm struggling here, I need some help. You know, um, because you can't do it on your own. Yes. You know, we win as a team and we lose as a team, and, that, and that's the way it is, and that's my philosophy. So mm-hmm. so I think trying to build all of those things in as a CEO and as a CEO, you have some influence over who, who comes onto the board, but ultimately it's not your decision. You know, it's a board decision who gets elected to the board. Mm-hmm. But but if you know people that you think will add real value to the board, then clearly you can go and, and hopefully persuade the rest of the board that it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. So so building those relationships and having those relationships where people are there to help you, including the board, and everybody has a vested interest in trying to make it successful and and they understand what the vision is and buy into the vision um, is good. And again, ego, you know, ego is a huge problem in any, I think in any business, in any any walk of life, really. Mm. You know, putting your ego away is a big part of being successful too, I think. Major deals get get canned because of people's egos. Right. Um, And so as a CEO, you know, you can't, like anybody else, you can't have an ego. You have to be able to be challenged by people below you. Mm. And and I and I, <laughs> I'd like to think that the team, you know, at Leaf certainly would would say that they challenge me on a regular basis and say, well, actually, we don't think we should do that. We should do this instead. Right. And and I can be persuaded. Um. So, but you also then have to accept that as a CEO and with a limited company and most other businesses, businesses really are. What's the right word? benign dictatorships if you like you know you will always if there is a decision to be made you'll always almost certainly have differences of opinion around the table right yes options yeah and at some point somebody has to make a decision well the ceo is 51 percent of the vote and so part of what i try and do and and i hope and successful other people have to answer for this is try and persuade people that actually you have a voice and you have an option mm. to put your opinion and your thoughts, your, you know, your thoughts forward and, and persuade me one way or the other. But ultimately, when I've made a decision, my expectation is that the management team and everybody else will support that. Right. Having had the opportunity to influence the outcome because I, because I do have to make a decision. So, yes. and that's the same with the board. And, you know, my position on the board is no different. So we'll have a discussion at the board maybe about something and we'll have differences of opinion. I don't have 51% of the vote on the board. Mm-hmm. So if the board makes a decision that I initially did not agree with, once a decision is made, it's my job to support that decision going right. forward then and afterwards. And so it's kind of build, trying to build that culture. It's a team culture. And mm-hmm. I know that's a bit, you know, it's a bit trite really, but, but, it, but it is true. I think it's, I think it's everybody trying to, trying to understand where you're trying to get to and, and basically doing their best to be part of that team to make it happen, essentially. So it's, it's building yeah. a culture really, which is, which is, the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's interesting what you talk about there. There's um, clearly that focus on bringing the right people together, whether that's in the team, on the board, whatever whatever that might be. And that's where you can help, clearly. Yes. <laughs> businesses, you know, I mean, that's that's important. Yes. And I think it's important for you as a recruiter and, you know, to understand the dynamics in an, in an organization when you're trying to place people. Because if mm-hmm. you understand that, 
you know, the people you can find are likely to be a better place, aren't they? Absolutely. You know, and it's a conversation we have regularly that, um, of course, you know, a lot of roles, there's going to be some technical skills that you need and there's going to be some experience you need and that kind of thing. But thinking about the person that you need to bring in and, and the qualities that that person has and the competencies that they have outside of their role, particularly in leadership roles, um, is is more important, to be honest. The, the technical criteria are kind of a box to tick. Rather. I agree. I agree. And, you know, and when I, you know, I say this about interviews, when we interview somebody, we've interviewed them on the basis of looking at their CV. And so mm. on the CV, it says they've got all of the skills that we need, or most of them, not necessarily all of them. Yeah. And so, so you have to trust that the information that's in the CV is correct, and it's true. So on that basis, then when we start to talk to people on a, on a face-to-face basis in an interview, for me, it's about finding a personality fit. Mm. because I'd much rather hire somebody who is a really good personality fit for the team and for me and train them and teach them some of the things they may not lack about what we do than than take on somebody who has everything from a technical point of view but actually is a very, very poor personality fit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this this potentially leads on to um, and overlaps a little bit with the next thing I was going to ask you. You mentioned about... um, some of your early managers really sort of setting the tone for how you managed and led people and, and some of the things they taught you. And I, you know, I'm sure there was other things over the years as well. Um, my, my view on leadership is, and this is purely my view. So, so you may disagree with me on this, please feel free to, if you do. um, people sometimes talk about born leaders and, I think there are people who have innate leadership qualities, but I think leadership is something you have to develop, right? You have to refine and learn and, and make mistakes. And you're not just naturally a great leader on the first day that you, you start being one. Um, so, so my question is, what are the things do you think that have been pivotal to your development as a leader? What are the lessons that you've learned from that point of view? Firstly, I would agree with you. Okay. So, so I don't think there's, <laughs> there's any issue there. Um, I think it all comes down to, yeah, we do make mistakes. And, and you know, as a, young, as a young manager or team leader or whatever, um, I think I was certainly guilty at times of, of being a bit defensive about the position mm. I might be adopting or something because of inexperience and feeling. And feeling, I think it comes from a feeling of, you know, I'm the leader, therefore they're expecting me to know the answer and, and mm-hmm. to get it all right all the time. Well, clearly, that's not, that's not the case. As you grow older, you learn about that. So it's, mm. it's learning to, and that comes down to that ego point that I was making. So, yes. so learning to, to, to be open to ideas and, and learning to understand that actually it's okay to say, you know what, you're right, I was wrong. It was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. Mm. And I've made, a, I've made a poor decision. It's my decision. And I've made many of them, you know. Um, so... And then it comes down to respect. So, you know, you want, you want people to treat you with respect and, and that's exactly what they want. Yes. So I think if you generally treat people with respect and manage people the way that you would like to be managed and work with people the way that you would like people to work with you, then I think, you know, you'll, you'll be, a good, be, be a good leader and a good manager. Mm. Um, you have to be, you have to, it's, it's a hard line. Managing people is probably the hardest bit of about any job. When you become a manager about anything and you're managing people, that, that's probably the toughest thing you're going to do because, because people have different stresses 
mm. in their lives, they have different things going on in their lives, and, and you want them to focus on work, and, but you have to allow other things to, to interfere sometimes, and, and, you have to, and you have to figure out how do you cope with that. Yes. Particularly when you've got a small team like we have. Um, so there's a degree of empathy that you have to have, but also there's a degree that actually I've got to get a job done. So I understand you've got a problem here. Therefore, how do I solve that? And if you're kind of out of action for a little while, then I'm going to do something to replace you. And I don't want you to be offended about that, mm. but I've got to get on with this too. So I'll help you here and I need to carry on with the business on the other side of it as well. So, yeah. so it, is, it is always a difficult difficult challenge but i think as i say i think it comes down to me it comes down to respect treat people with respect and expect to be treated with respect yourself and i think if you can do that then then generally um it'll work out and you'll be a big good manager that doesn't mean to say that you shouldn't have professional training management training because i've had some True. of that too i've been on you know professional management training courses and 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 day one day courses and various other things and they're all helpful they're all very helpful. What you've got to learn to do is take the bits that are relevant to mm. you and your business away, as opposed to saying, well, that's a prescribed way. I need to be a manager from, from, from now on. So yeah. then, um, but also you need to, you know, you need to understand the law as well. Whatever environment you're in as a manager, you need to understand, have a reasonably good understanding of, of what the local laws are as far mm -hmm. as management and, and, and HR and all those things are concerned. And, and yes, we have an HR, um, professional that helps us yes but as a manager you know you've got to you've got to understand that there are things that you can and can't do with people who work with you mm. and, and vice versa you know people's behavior within an organization is also something that's important that you have to manage and so you have to understand where all the boundaries are on both sides of that that yes. equation yeah no it makes sense and I, and I think um i'm sure there's been some unique challenges over the course of the last, last 12 months or so from that point of view. Not necessarily from an HR point of view, but from a leadership point of view. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, they have. But, but again, you know, the, the team has been really good, so it's actually not been too difficult. Yeah. And I think, you know, the one of the things that, that I noticed was there was an appreciation that this was something different and something new from, from pretty much everybody. I think when we were conducting these interviews during last summer, for example, you know, we were speaking to people who were very, very experienced. Most things you threw their way, they'd been through some version of it before, but not this. No, no one had led an organization through this kind of situation before. Yeah, that's right. So the other thing I was interested in talking to you about, Simon, was, um, again, it's kind of related. So we, so we may overlap with some of the things we've talked about already, but um, you talked a little bit earlier about um, when you interview people, the sorts of things that you look at, this probably touches on that. But um, for people who are earlier in their career, for people who are progressing their careers, scientists who are, you know, maybe going on that leadership journey or maybe taking those those first steps in uh, in into industry or, or wherever they might be, are there particular things do you think that you wish you'd known early on in your career, or particular bits of advice you'd give to people at that point in their journey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting. Um, I think the first thing is, again, from a personal point of view, none of none of this was planned. Mm -hmm. So I had no plans when I when I graduated and went to LMB. I had no plans or, or thoughts that actually I was going to be a CEO and would want to be a CEO. Mm. You know, um, and it's and it's all about 
opportunities arise during during your career and you have to make a decision about whether to whether to take the chance or not and everything is a risk you know life is a risk so so some of those decisions are more risky than others you know going into biotech and small biotech companies is is always a risk because you know money is always a always a key element and you know that kind of thing um so you but i think one of the important things that that i think i would pieces of advice i would offer somebody is sit back and as objectively as you can and maybe with somebody else's input who is completely independent try and work out what your strengths and weaknesses are mm. if you understand your strengths and weaknesses then then you can make i think better or good decisions about what next to do with your career mm-hmm. and and thinking about my own and you know i didn't do this not not consciously and i don't right. know whether i did it subconsciously when i was young i do it i've done it since mm-hmm. um but going into biotech and you know forming a company and and living you know is really stressful it was really stressful and it's always been stressful i don't think i've ever worked in a company that where it wasn't really stressful right. as a as a ceo it gets even more stressful so you have to be able to cope with that and and you have to be able to respond in the right way and you know you have to be able to deal with things calmly and you have to deal with people calmly mm-hmm. and you have to be able to try and think through the strategies again not on your own but but you know if you're leading it you've got to think through that so so i think one of the things i've learned is that generally when things are things are going well it's a lot easier for everybody sure. clearly when things are not going well, so when a company, for example, is running out of money or something's happened, there are there are typically three responses that you get from from people in the organisation at all mm. levels. Is you get people who just can't cope with the stress and the uncertainty and everything else, and they leave mm-hmm. because it's just they just don't know. And there are good reasons for that. People have mortgages and bills and you know all the rest of it. Yeah, all about that. Then there are people who sort of just keep their heads below the parapet, keep moving, try and hope that somebody else is going to solve the problem and it's all going to go away. Mm. Okay? And there are always those sorts of people. And then you get people who put their heads up above the parapet and put their hands up and say, what do you need me to do? Mm-hmm. And, and I think as a leader, this is one of the notes I've made, as a leader, when you move into an organisation or you're building an organisation, you need to try and understand who's who in that in that group right you know, what people fit which profile because it's going to be important at some point in mm-hmm. the business and as an individual sit back and think about that you know where do you fit in all of that can you cope with stress and it may be that yes you can cope with stress but now that you're you know you might have a young family or whatever you know it's, it puts different stresses on you and can your family cope with that yes because you know you've got a, you've got relationships going on and and you're going to be stressed and that stress is going to transfer to people that you're living with and and your partners and your children and all those other things so can they all cope with that as well mm-hmm. um and you've got to factor all in that into that naval contemplation about who am i <laughs> and what can i cope with you know what are my strengths and weaknesses i think if you understand your strengths and weaknesses i think you'll make better decisions about your career going forward yeah and then the final thing i would say to somebody is if you apply for a job and you're not sure about whether you can do the job, but you apply for the job, you go for the interviews, and somebody offers you the job, take it. Mm-hmm. Don't sit back and worry about whether you can do it, because trust me, you'll learn it. You'll learn yeah. it. The fact is, in fact, other people have, have said, you know, we trust you to do this, even though you might not take all the boxes. We think you can do it, so come and do it. 
they just take it. Yeah. You know, and, and you will learn how to do it. And then the final thing is, I think, is if you get an opportunity to work in a different country, in a different culture, and you can, and everybody around you is happy for that to happen, I would certainly take that opportunity. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Do you, you feel that gives you a, a wider perspective? or Very much so. Right, okay. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's, you know, developing relationships and understanding different cultures. I mean, it's mm. hugely mm-hmm. important. No, we don't... We work in a global in a global market now, so so understanding how people behave and how businesses behave in other cultures. For example, in Japan, you know, I've done deals in Japan and all over the world, really. And and the more you understand about how they like to operate, yeah, the more chance you've got of being successful and and developing good relationships with them. And it, as I said right at the beginning of this, it's all about relationships. You know, your success and your failure will depend on relationships like everything else in, in life, but in business particularly. So, mm-hmm. um, so understanding people's culture and, and, and what their needs are will help you get to a point where you, you develop a sort of a win-win situation that you can both move forward with. So, yeah, I would, I would always advocate if you get an opportunity to work abroad, even if it's on a t- temporary basis, yeah, you know, go and do it. No, agreed, agreed. Um, so just to, to loop back to the very beginning, Simon, um, we talked a bit about where Leaf Expression Systems is now and, and the work that you're doing there. What, what's next? Where are you heading? So where, where we want Leaf to go now is we, you know, we've demonstrated that technology works and that we can build a business. And now we've got to get to the point where we can scale all of that up. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think we have a part to play in the, in the UK PLC's future preparedness for vaccine manufacturing in the future. And I, and I would dearly love us to have an opportunity to do that. Um, and I would love it to be in the UK. I would, right. I would be, I would be disappointed if actually we end up having to offshore everything we've developed here into a, into a company that's somewhere else abroad, mm-hmm. you know, not because I've got anything against companies that are abroad, but the technology was developed here. Um, and, and we're looking to build the UK manufacturing base again because, you know, the German economy and the US economies and things are strong because they have manufacturing bases. Yeah. And, and we sort of moved away from that. We need to move back into that. I know the government is very, very keen to invest in high tech, not just biotech, but biosciences and high tech generally. And, mm-hmm. and we want to be part of that. So, so the challenges for us now as a board at LEAF and the team at LEAF is to build this business so that we get scale up capability Get to a point where we can manufacture products that can be used on an in vivo in an in vivo situation for drugs and vaccines and yes. various other things um and so that's what that's where i'd like to take the business with the rest of the with the rest of the team basically that's what we're working on yeah so so plenty of work ahead but lots of potential it sounds like. <laughs> it's fantastic the potential is fantastic and i just yeah. love the technology so well Good luck with it, Simon. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing that. It's been really, really good to speak to you. Pleasure, Tom. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks for joining us on Careers in Discovery. And don't forget to subscribe for more insight into the world of drug discovery and R&D. Do take a look at our sponsors, Singular Talent, and their mission to make hiring better for companies and individuals in drug discovery and R&D. You can find them at www.singulartalent.io. See you next time.